Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is photojournalist Shannon Taggart, who joined me to talk about her 2019 photo book, Seance. This project was the culmination of two decades of research into the history, rituals, practices and exponents of spiritualism. The religious movement which emerged in the mid-19th century in upstate New York in the USA and is now established across the globe. Shannon's interest in the subject stems from an experience as a child attending a service at a spiritualist church in Lilydale, which is perhaps the town most emblematic of the movement in the United States. For the book, she expected to spend one summer figuring out the tricks of the spiritualist trade, but instead the mysterious processes earnest practitioners and neglected photographic history became an inspiration which would see her travel to the United Kingdom and Europe in order to see the project to its conclusion. Seance features 150 of her original images, complemented by historical photographs, a commentary on her experiences, and a foreword by Dan Aykroyd, who himself is a fourth-generation spiritualist. It concludes with a debate over ectoplasm and how spiritualism can move forward in the 21st century. In the interview, we begin by discussing Shannon's initial experience at a spiritualist service, and from there, talk more about Lilydale and how the idea for the Seance Project came about. Our conversation also explores the relationship between photography and spiritualism, the practices and methodology that are used, and the mysterious, controversial substance that is ectoplasm. It was a pleasure to talk with Shannon about her craft, which I think was a great subject for some other sphere to reach its 100th episode on. Enjoy! Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Seance is a a fantastic book. Um, Prior to beginning your work on that project, where did your interest in spiritualism come from? Uh, well, I first learned about spiritualism right around the time I found photography, which was in my early teens uh, when I was in high school. Uh, my cousin went to Lilydale, New York, which is a town that's home to the world's largest spiritualist community. And um, I grew up nearby. And so my cousin went there and got this message from a medium that she did not know that said that our grandfather had choked to death and that's really how he died. And my cousin said, oh my God, that's so absurd. This woman is crazy. But then she came home and found out it was actually true. Our shared grandfather was dying of cancer, but he actually had a choking incident and that's... um, how he actually died. And none of us knew that. And I remember, I mean, it really shocked my entire family that this woman could, you know, pull that out of the ether. You know, I mean, it was an anonymous sitting because, you know, in Lilydale, they have these uh, um, message services where you just go, you don't put your name or anything. You don't, you just sit on a bench and people, the mediums stand in the front and they pick you out randomly. So that's how I first learned about spiritualism, but I didn't start photographing it until much later. Okay. Uh, yeah, you write about that incident in your book. I mean, looking back, how important do you think that was in terms of the this project, this this book and the photography you did for it ever happening? Um, I think it was 
profoundly important because I don't know if I would have stumbled upon this otherwise. I mean, you know, I think with these types of topics, you really are drawn to investigate them through personal experience. So if I hadn't had such a strong, striking personal experience, I don't know if I would have ever, um, you know, done this type of work. Hmm. And Lilydale itself also features quite prominently early in the book with some, you know, some historic photographs and your own photographs of that place. What is that town like? I'm fascinated to know what that kind of place is to experience in person. Uh, for me, uh, it really does feel like a time warp being in Lilydale. And I've felt this way since the first time I ever crossed its gate. Uh, it's a tiny Victorian cottage town. Um, so it literally looks like another era, but it also feels like another era. Um, they, there's something very much alive of the late 1800s there. And also very, you know, very otherworldly. You see signs that you wouldn't see in any other place, like no seances in the hotel, please, or um, trumpet seance tonight at 8 p.m., or workshop to talk to your dead pets. You, you know, there's something very alternate universe about the town in its entirety. And it's just a very special, unique place, and I've never been anywhere like it. Mm. And where it's located, um, I think you hinted at that just now, is there's a history to that part of of the world. It's in upstate New York, having a uh, being home to this kind of thing. It was called the Burned Over District. Yeah, yeah. Lilydale is actually um, located where a lot of people would congregate in summers, but the Burned Over District is technically, you know, probably about 90 miles away from Lilydale. And that's like a, a 20 mile radius of upstate New York where um, Shakers, um, Spiritualists, Seventh-day Adventists, um, Palmyra, where um, the Mormon religion started. It was kind of like this hotbed of religious fervor and a, a place where all these psychic experiences happened in uh, the 1800s. And so, yeah, so Lilydale, it, it, it was on a train path. So I guess that's how they ended up there. And somebody donated the land to build the town in 1878. Hmm. And the Fox sisters, that's where they're, they're, what they did sort of is one of the founding acts of spiritualism in America. Yeah, yeah. The Fox sisters were from outside of Rochester, New York, in the burned over district. And that's where they first started communicating uh, via coded raps with the spirit world. And then that went to Rochester, New York. And there was a lot of uh, progressive politics in Rochester. And it kind of merged with the progressive Quaker community and the women's rights movement. And it kind of took off and then, you know, spread around the world. So going back to the project that led to this book, what was it that kicked that off after, you know, we have your own interest in this subject, but was there something else that made you think that it was something feasible or, or something that you could uh, accomplish, I guess? Well, I, you know, I was, I had gone to photography school in Rochester and then I was working as a photojournalist. I was working for newspapers and then I was also doing like public relations work. And I found I had always, you know, I wanted to be a documentarian. I wanted to do documentary work. I wanted to work on long, uh, really intense photography projects. And I wasn't getting those assignments. So I thought, oh, I'll start a project on my own in my spare time. And maybe I'll do something about Lilydale. And, you know, I was planning to be there for a couple of weeks one summer, you know, just go a few times. And I once I started the project, I realized what I had encountered, which was this, um, you know, this totally fascinating piece of history that had been written out of every textbook I had ever studied from. 
And I found out that they had their own type of photography that wasn't in any of the books that I had learned from. And I became just completely fascinated because, um, and this is a big sticking point for me, I think the stereotype is that anybody who's interested in mediumship or spiritualism these days is naive or dumb. And I found that that was absolutely not the case and that it had this absolutely wild intellectual history that played into all of these fascinating aspects of culture. Excellent. And so in your in your mind's eye, did you have an idea of some of the images that you wanted to take? Was it, did you start the project at Lilydale? Well, I almost, yeah, I started at Lilydale and almost immediately I was up against um, a problem, which was that you, you know, everything that was happening of consequence in the things I was observing or investigating at Lilydale involved invisible things. They involved an invisible interaction. Uh, you know, how do you make a picture of a veiled presence and a visible body. And, you know, I was getting really, also too, the, just the sense of place in Lilydale was really, really hard for me to get in, in pictures, even in a landscape image. And, 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 you know, in the book, I end up, to set the scene, I end up using a lot of historical postcards because I just, there was such a feeling, it was so hard to articulate visually, but especially to articulate the psychological reality of the town was nearly impossible. And so, you know, almost immediately I started struggling and, you know, I was making pictures that, you know, I was making some interesting pictures, but I really felt like I wasn't really getting to the heart and soul of Lilydale in my pictures and, you know, in the book, I talk about like how I started happy, having, you know, these happy accidents with my camera. And I've told these stories a bunch where, you know, I was in a seance and they were passing around this red flashlight. They were trying to show transfiguration, which is when, a, a you know, spiritualists believe that spirits can change your face and show themselves via your face using light. And every, we were passing around this flashlight and everybody, this woman gets a flashlight and everybody sees this second face right next to her face. And they say, oh, it looks like you, but it's not exactly you. Maybe it's your doppelganger. Oh, maybe it's your grandmother. Maybe it's that voodoo priestess, Marie Laveau. And everybody in the room was seeing the second face. And I did not see the second face. I saw a woman holding a flashlight and I tried to make a very straightforward picture of this. And when I got my film back, I had, because of the long exposure, I was even on a tripod, I had uh, this second face floating right next to her face that looked like her, but a little bit different. And, you know, I know it was a function of my longer shutter speed, but it was shocking and uncanny and felt very exciting. I felt like I had unlocked, um, you know, a door into someplace else by making this accidental picture. Yeah, I think I know the photo that you're talking about. And it, it is, there is something about it that's quite unsettling almost. The The photographs are all fantastic, but I mean, you just talked there about the shock of, of seeing that after what happened in the seance. But overall, are the photographs that you put in the book, how, I guess, how, how different are they from what you might have imagined you would get? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I guess I, I, so I kind of, I started moving in the project. I moved very, very straightforwardly at first, like a, like a photojournalist. And when I got that picture, it was thrilling and exciting, but I still was kind of being straightforward. And then, um, I started, you know, three years in, I kind of felt stuck and I, I thought, you know, I really don't think that this is a topic that I could even really photograph. I don't think it's something you can do a documentary project about. And so I, I, you know, I think maybe four years in, I just stopped and I felt like I would never do anything with these, this project. I would never publish it. It was just impossible. And also, 
too, you know, I, I became early on, I became totally, absolutely, completely fascinated with the history of spirit photography. Hmm. And um, I was also trying to use that as my visual like inspiration or play off of this wonky history and people just weren't getting it. And so I found like every time I showed my pictures anywhere, I would have to give this long song and dance explaining what spiritualism even was. I mean, so this was like way back in 2001, I also learned about spirit art, which I had never heard of before. And at this time, I know now it's very, very popular, you know, with Helmhoff Clint and all these rediscoveries of these mediumistic uh, painters, but then there was next to zero interest. And I'm talking like in art school. And also when I, I moved to New York City and I was freelancing as an editorial photographer. And, you know, there I, I was met more often with disgust than I was with an openness. Hmm. And so, you know, I, I fully was confronted with this attraction repulsion uh, response to the topic that I was not anticipating because I just thought it was all so interesting, like, oh, this history and that, you know, is kind of forgotten and the, these these things that people say they're doing with their minds. And um, I was just really taken aback by how much resistance there was uh, there that I encountered when I was trying to share the pictures. And so I stopped for um, about five years, I think. But during that time, I became a researcher. I just started reading everything I could related to spiritualism. Right. And so something else that just comes to mind is, did you feel as though with using photography as your medium in and in this setting that is connected to the paranormal, it was there... I, I wonder if a lot of people would think that the purpose of photography related to the paranormal is to sort of capture something, capture evidence of something. That's always something that, that skeptics will ring a bell about is proof and evidence and things like that. Was that something else that you had to not get past, but but did it present a challenge in that you were attempting something that wasn't really about that? It was more depicting what this movement, what this this practice is well yeah so after my research period i you know I, I came when i picked the project back up i was no longer trying to say anything very clear you know or 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 say if it was true or false in any sort of way i through reading about like the anthropology of ritual and the whole history of shamanism and the history of parapsychology and a lot of the theories related to the paranormal, I started to embrace the ambiguity and to understand that, you know, these, a true conclusion is not available. Um, and I started to like make pictures that confused things rather than cleared anything up. And so I started to become a lot more experimental and kind of use photography to look at spiritualism and use spiritualism to look at photography, like in the way that they both have this very complicated relationship with truth. And so I st started to kind of approach it as like a feedback loop and to be as like confusing as possible and to leave any question of evidence behind. And so this, this approach actually put me in, into a direct, um, it kind of, a lot of spiritualists didn't understand what I was doing because in spiritualism, all their art is in a service of evidence. So even when you see a spirit painting, you know, it's not just a painting, it's supposed to be evidential of an interaction with the spirit world. And so what I was saying with these pictures are, I don't know what's happening. I'm just playing with both mediums and seeing what happens. And a lot of people were like, well, I don't understand why you would do it if it's not evidence, you know, and, and some people understood what I, what I was doing. And then, um, you know, uh, uh, people who are skeptical would view my pictures as, oh, it's just long exposures. It's just, um, it's just a photography trick. And so I was, the images I started to really want to make were the ones that had two interpretations available that, you know, you could see it as, um, you could give it a mechanical explanation or you could give it a spiritual explanation. 
And so that's how I ended up moving forward, which I think was pretty much confusing to everybody who I was showing my work to. Um, but I felt like it was the way to do it. Did you participate in any of the seances or any of the activity that's depicted in the photographs? Yes. Yeah, I guess I would consider my role in this book as like a participant observer. Um, so, you know, I, I took development classes. I sat in on, you know, when I went to a seance, I went as a sitter. And, you know, one of the cool things about spiritualism, I, I've talked to like ceremonial um, magicians who say to me, they think it's wrong to bring a camera into a ritual and like that they, they can't, um, you know, it's not something that they think is interesting to do to bring a camera into a ritual, but spiritualism is different because there's always been cameras in their rituals. I mean, that's why they use a red light is for the photographers. You know, it's like a dark room. It's so that the plates could be open because, you know, since the early beginnings, people were bringing cameras into seance rooms and trying to prove the reality with photography. So um, when I come to a seance with my camera, it's actually in a tradition. I'm working in a tradition. So um, so I come and I sit in my seat and I don't, you know, I don't, I just act as a sitter with a camera, I guess is what I'm saying. So I really tried to, to blend in and um, as much as possible. And uh, yeah, and so, and I also, I approached the book kind of as co very collaborative with all the mediums because I do think mediumship is a creative act. And so when I was putting together the book, that's why the interviews, you know, in the back, there's all these long interviews where I tell some of the stories and I wanted the mediums to have a voice. And I also didn't use any pictures that people didn't want me to use. But, um, you know, it ended up that there wasn't any pictures that I wanted to put in the book that I was told no. So that was good. But I really wanted everybody um, to feel like collaborating in the book. And that's something that's kind of hard to do with photography. Yeah, it's really interesting there you talk about the use of, of red light in spiritualist medium sessions. I I was wondering that, um, looking at the photographs, because in that red light, there is an eerie quality to, to those photographs. There's, there's one, I think it's from the section at the Arthur Findlay College of a man in the, in the sort of the cabinet, and it's in this, well, this red and it's almost like red and black, essentially, in the photograph. And it really gives that anotherworldly quality. Um, and I was going to ask you about that relationship, but you've, you've answered that there. In, in, in terms of the spiritualist medium sessions themselves, how did your appreciation of them change over time as you did this project? Um, well, I just, you know, I was open after I... I guess I maybe I, you know, I started with a certain amount of questions. And one of those questions was certainly, is this real or not? You know, and um, as I went on, I started to understand that, you know, you know, I know fraud and is a big part of the whole history of spiritualism. Now, I was meeting, for the most part, I have to say, I mean, to a very, you know, almost 99%, I, I met people who I felt were sincere practitioners who had been called to do this work and who were not making a lot of money, which, you know, butted up against a stereotype that, you you know, it's all people, um, not that some of them don't make a living on it. Certainly they do, but it wasn't exorbitant. Um, and, but I understand that fraud is, or, you know, uh, sometimes mediums give messages that make no sense or, you know, some mediums say there's a thing called mixed mediumship where it's like when the power isn't there, they fake it till they make it. Or, you know, there are some people who um, in the darkroom seances do out and out magic tricks. Um, but I started to understand that that was all part of it. It was kind of baked in and that um, we don't really understand the role that fraud plays in these types of experience. And so I just started to, just become more and more interested in what everybody was doing, even if I didn't vibe to the person, you know, just seeing like how they conducted their sessions or how they engaged. And um, I started to, you know, just, I traveled as much as I could. The whole, the kind of arc of the book is um, centered around this search for ectoplasm because 
Uh, even though, you know, early on I saw those ectoplasm pictures and they just blew my mind. Like I could not, they were the weirdest, most uniquely unsettling pictures I had ever seen. They were distinctly strange. Um, and I wanted to understand what they were supposed to mean. And I wanted to know if there were people out in the world still trying to produce ectoplasm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I agree about those photographs. They're great. Um, a section of the of the book is centered around the Arthur Findlay College, um, which is actually here in the UK. But I only yeah. just recently realized that. <laughs> uh, shame on me. How did you come to end up there? Um, so I, I met a medium in Lilydale named Lauren Thibodeau, who actually became a really a dear friend and a mentor. And she was... Tr- I, you know, I learned through spirit. I thought spiritualists were just born as mediums and that was it. But then I learned that, no, they take classes and they do development like any other kind of discipline. And so she was, Lauren was traveling to Arthur Finley College to um, study trance work, like deep trance. And she told me about this place and I could not believe that it existed. And the minute she told me about it, I was like, I have to go there. And it really is very much like a Hogwarts uh, for adult spiritualists. It's an amazing place. I met people from all over the world there. It's it's different from Lilydale because it's all condensed into this one really beautiful historic building. So it's but it's it's very intense. Like you go there and you take these classes and um I've been there many times and it's um it's a really special place. It's it's different than Lilydale, but again it's like it's like a place unlike any other on earth, I would say. And so I would encourage anybody interested to check out Arthur Finley College. Did you take courses when you were there? Yeah, yeah, I did. And, um, you know, I, I, spiritualists believe that everybody has these abilities and that, you know, like everybody can play the piano. Some people can only play chopsticks and other people are Chopin. Um, So, you know, when you're in this kind of group mind situation of these these classes I would go through the exercises and I did find them really inspiring and um it did make me it forced me to work with my imagination in a different way and uh, I found it really interesting and inspiring and sometimes I was able to give messages that made sense which was confusing to me because I did not consider myself a medium but it's it was very very interesting and I think anybody who's a creative um, might enjoy trying in a mediumship class. It, it is really interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about those experiences, the, the the messages you were giving and how that worked for you? Yeah, they just, it's kind of like being walked through like visualizations and you're, you're taught or you're expected to take your imagination very seriously, which, you know, even in, up until I started engaging with spiritualism, I never really thought of my imagination in that way, even though I was doing creative work. But it was you're you were you're encouraged um, to take to when you focus on when you're when you're using an intention and focusing on what's coming through your imagination to take it very seriously and to trust it and kind of um, grow and work with information certain information they um, they. It's it's a whole like medium mediums also t- talk about like you know being able to control and like turn messages on turn messages off like make them sharper make them clearer and they have a number of techniques and so you know just for example I was in a development class and I was in a circle and I was asked to sit with a woman and give her messages and I said oh you know what I got in my head was this um, wax stamp like I was seeing a wax stamp, like come out of nowhere and just like stamp. And I told her this and, you know, it feels very silly when something like I'm seeing a wax stamp. And, and she said, I am the only person in my country who runs this like custom wax stamp like company. And I said, Oh my gosh, really? And then that got me excited. And so then she ended up being, she was actually a mediumship teacher. And then she ended up walking me through a message for herself um, that she said was meaningful and that I ended up giving her. And I, you know, I don't do this stuff at home by myself usually. Um, but uh, I find 
being in a situation with people who are in a belief state and using like this, you know, accessing this sort of like a group mind situation, I do think it's really, really powerful and really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So following on from that, what insight did doing those classes give you into what might be going on with um, with mediums and, and and spiritualism? I don't know. I mean, sometimes, well, one thing that was interesting was watching people, you know, because they have, they'll have Japanese week, Italian week, French week, you know, or, or they'll have like some certain type of trance week where people will come all from all over the world and speak different languages and take the class. And what I witnessed and saw was that people from totally different cultures, different ages, different races, um, were able to come together on this way they were using their mind or these, these experiences they were having and able to like help each other and, um, find camaraderie and talk about techniques for these invisible, um, you know, invisible things at, at work that, you know, they were using or accessing or the way they were using their brains. And I thought that was really compelling because I don't know how you would, somebody would fake that. I mean, people were, coming together and with this, you know, ability or skill or uh, pursuing this way of working, and they were able to communicate across, across all these other boundaries, just based on this experience. Right. Yeah. And then the photographs that you took there, um, with it being uh, all, all centered around one building, how did that influence what you wanted to photograph and how you did it? Um, well, I mean, one of the, one of the classes that was my favorite at Arthur Finley was they, the spiritualists end up kind of, you know, with these ghost hunting shows being popular. And also there was a thing that happened in England called the skull experiment, which was a seance group that used video and photography and a lot of different types of media to, um, create evidence. Um, so they, they started to be open to this, um, use. So they, so they started running a course called paranormal investigation. And so I, that was the most fun for me because it would be a lot of people there with gear and everybody's trying to like make weird pictures or, or, you know, play around. And I got really inspired by the way they were using their equipment. You know, it was like very DIY. It was very punk. It was very like, um, people who didn't necessarily know much about cameras, but were like, working with their cameras to make really distinctive images. And uh, so that, that ended up like being a huge part, part of the project. And I ended up, they, they call it instrumental transcommunication. So ITC is the short uh, uh, name for it. And so that ended up becoming a big part of the book. And I had never really thought of doing that with photography, you know, trying to use smoke or water or, um, you know, different forms of light in the dark to try to manifest pictures. And so, so that became a really fun aspect. Yeah. It feels like it's, um, it, it uses some of the same ideas as you might use for what, like a hoax photograph or something or to fake something, but in a more positive way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, then I started thinking, you know, some people would say, oh, well, you, or some spirituals would say, well, oh, it's just a blurry picture. It's it's not meaningful. But, um, but then I started to think, I started to get really philosophical about it and think, well, what is a blurry picture? I don't know. It's like a collection of time and that, you know, we abstract time, you know, you photograph runners at like a five thousandth of a second, you know, um, Maybe it's also appropriate to photograph a medium at five seconds. I don't know. Um, but also that the playing with time, you know, one of the primary aspects of a paranormal experience is time behaves differently. You know, like time becomes, it, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't run the way it does normally in life. You know, there's time slips or it moves slowly or fast. Or um, So I thought, oh, it's oddly appropriate to be playing with time with these types of experiences like an entranced medium is playing with time and so I started to really try to experiment with those types of exposures and um, 
there was one, uh, there was a one medium named Sharon Harvey and I had made a bunch of pictures of her that she liked, but she said, you know, I've been showing them around and everyone says, oh, Sharon, they're just long exposures. So tonight, hon, I just want you to take really fast exposures. I don't want you to make any of those long exposures. And I said, okay. So I sat in her seance room and I pumped my digital, you know, all the way up as, you know, as fast as the film speed would go. And I tried to, you know, not like keep the shutter as fast as possible. And so then we're in the middle of the seance and her spirit guide addressed me directly and said, I want you to take one long exposure. And in that exposure, I will show you my mask. And so I did take one and it's one of my favorite pictures in the book because it's, it does look like two faces and it looks like a perfect mask of light coming off of her. And, um, you know, it wasn't made out of a bunch of, you know, it wasn't a lot of experimentation. I was directed to do it and I did it and it came out. Cool. Yeah. Um, and Arthur Finley College is almost your quintessential British haunted house. Outside of the classes and and everything, did anything unusual happen while you were there? I can't, I can't decide whether if this plant kind of place goes to be everywhere or the ghosts will be very much in the classes <laughs> um you know no at, every time I've stayed at Arthur Finley College I've had weird stuff happen to me um and there's a few of those pictures in the book like one time I was staying alone in my room and I opened the door and my pillow was like standing straight up on my bed like and I had not put it there <laughs> um it was like so shocking. And I, it was after my room had been cleaned. I, you know, it was after dinner. I I was the only person staying in the room. And, you know, one other time, the first time I was there, I was staying with my friend Lauren and I had a Sharpie marker because I was marking my film canisters with film speeds. I was pushing my film at that time. I was shooting film and I looked and it, my, Sharpie was gone. And I said, Lauren, did you just take my Sharpie? And she was across the room. And she said, no. And I said, well, it was just here and now it's gone. And she goes, well, just ask for it back. And I had never that that kind of at that point, I would never have thought to to say that. But, you know, I, so I said, OK, oh, this is so silly. I turned around and I said, can I have it back? And Lauren was still across the room. I could see her with my eyes and I turned back. And it was sticking straight out of my uh, camera bag, like very playfully placed, like just jutting out. And I mean, I don't know, it was totally shocking. So uh, and I, there's also a picture of a penny that I found in my teacup there. That's that's one of the stories in the book. So, yeah, I've had very weird physical <laughs> experiences in Arthur Finley College. It's definitely a charged place. Yeah, absolutely. I've had that conversation with other guests about when things disappear and you're right the best thing to do is just politely ask for it back and more often than not you'll you'll get it back <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um oh yeah yeah I you did a great um interview with Patrick Harper yes yeah yeah I, yeah I, think, I talked I about it with guys, him and... yeah that's one of the, my, that book was so primary to me when I um, was in my research phase. It's such a fantastic book, his book, Diamonic Reality. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of my favorites. But um, getting back to your book, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you, you were talking a little while ago there about some of the technology that is, is used at, at Arthur Finley College in, in the classes and with paranormal investigation and other things like that is that what inspired the technology as muse section of your book yeah yeah and i met um actually met a woman who became a really good friend of mine a woman named donna sinclair hogan and she uh she started going to arthur finley college because she received a voicemail from her dead brother-in-law and it's like this really great hilarious story where i mean sad and hilarious, but that, you know, her brother-in-law died in a car accident and she 
was with her sister and she came home and listened to her voicemail and there was a voicemail from him and she called British Telecom and said, there's something wrong with your system. And they're like, no, it's a digital system and it's it runs on Greenwich Mean Time and it's, um, you know, it's regulated every day. And she's like, well, um, no, there's got to be something wrong with it. And they said the only re- way there would be something wrong with it is if there was a whole system crash and that hadn't happened in like 10 years. And she said, well, I have a a voicemail from my brother-in-law three days after he died. (laughs) And the guy on the phone said, this isn't the first time I've heard this. And you should Google phone calls from the dead. And so that like put her on this path to experiment with technology and go to Arthur Finley College. And she's developed medium now. But um, she's one of the... um, First, she was one of my kind of muses in this technology. She uses all she all different kinds of apps and different kinds of gear, and um, she's working with a lot of uh, different people who are also experimenting. So she's really guided me through some of this play. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a fantastic story. I, but it's it's that relationship between technology and the paranormal is a really interesting one. It's I can't think of many types of technology that haven't manifested something weird, but with phone calls, I'm not sure what's what's going on there. Like, why? I mean, I guess I guess it is literally a means of communication. Maybe sort of on some metaphysical level that makes it easier for something to communicate. I I really don't know. Yeah, I don't. I mean, a lot of a lot of the people who actually were pioneers of a lot of this technology were also interested in spiritualism. Mm. And I mean, I think even, you know, Watson, the assistant to Bell, you know, he was a spiritualist. Um, there's a, this whole spiritual shadow with all with technology, technology. Um, the, yeah, Eric Davis has a great book called technosis kind of touches on a lot of this, that, you know, this um, spiritual shadow attached to all of these processes yeah, yeah. And so yeah, with with that technology as muse section, how did you go about taking the photographs for that and, and deciding what you wanted to, to keep in that represented the, um, this this part of the project? Yeah, so for that I put in I guess the best way to put it is pictures that freaked me out. <laughs> that I took <laughs> you know, that there's one where I took a picture of smoke and it looks like a dog face or something is in the smoke. And I'm not, you know, in any of my pictures, I'm, I'm just using the computer as like a dark room. So I, I like, you know, adjust contrast and color, or like burn and dodge, which is, you know, making an area lighter or darker. But, you know, I didn't embed that, that face, it was just there. And, you know, there's one, um, I did an experiment at Loch Ness, where I just like ran towards Loch Ness with my camera, and it looks like a big, uh, Loch Ness monster in the picture. I love that one. And then, you know, there's one, there's water where it, um, some of the ITC experimenters were doing this thing where they put their hands in water and they shake water and then they take them away and then you photograph the water. And I made a picture of the water and it looks like a woman's face kind of coming to the surface. So all of those pictures, you know, they're kind of unsettling. And that's why I guess, you know, why I put them in and they, they really affected me. And, um, some of that, some of that kind of experimentation, I could see how it gets very intense. Um, so I try to, I, you know, you hear a lot about like people who listen to a lot of EVP, like it makes some people just kind of unsettled and, um, there is something unsettling about it. Um, but it's also fascinating. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'm intrigued by the Loch Ness photograph. When you were when you were up there, did that have a similar vibe to it as somewhere like Lilydale? Maybe differently because one's a larger community, I suppose. Well, I am interested in this idea of water as like a psychic psychic conductor. And, you know, Loch Ness is really dark water. It's a really deep lake. And so when I made the picture, I was just thinking about all the people who had projected their thoughts onto that water, wanting to see that monster and that maybe somehow that resonates as well, or it's their co-creators of, of Loch Ness. 
Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think the whole, the whole idea of water being tied to, um, certain paranormal spaces and, you know, I mean, I just read like how, you know, in ancient Greece, a lot of the areas where they would go to talk to the dead were either caves or by a lake, you know? So, um, I don't know this idea of like water being a, a superconductor, this hauntological like, you know, conductor. I think is really interesting. Yeah, and I imagine on a on a still day, a, a lake is it can almost be like glass, and glass has a a long history of being a, a medium through which to see through to another realm, like with scrying and things like that. So yeah, I I think that's that's a really interesting point. So um, earlier on, you were talking about ectoplasm and there's a couple of sections of the photographs in the book uh, relating to that ectoplasm as archetype and beyond ectoplasm. And as you were saying, that the photographs there have a, have a particularly eerie quality to them. When you were setting up for, that, for this part of the project, um, was that something that connected more with old photograph techniques than other aspects of the project? Um, well, what I found was, you know, I was seeing these, finding these pictures and I, there were, there weren't, you know, when I first started in 2001, there were not, there were no ectoplasm seances happening in Lilydale. And that's because uh, a lot of spiritualist churches and camps and um, centers had distanced themselves from like dark room seances because of the fraud accusations. And so most commonly what you'd what you see at a spiritualist church or you know with a medium is very much what you see on those reality tv shows where you know like we have one in the states called the long island medium and it's just a woman in a room with the lights on and the windows open and you know with a tissue box next to her giving messages and it just looks like a conversation um but even those mediums working that way they told me they believed in the reality of ectoplasm and so I kind of became obsessed with this idea, like, are there people in the world producing ectoplasm? And, you know, I was told, yes, there are. They're in their home circles or, you know, Arthur Finley College, the principal who was there for a long time, he would hold them like once or twice a year. And, you know, he had passed on by the time I got to Finley College. And actually, the first class I went to was an ecto or was a physical mediumship course. So that would be, of course, would cover ectoplasm. And you know, we were told ectoplasm is very dangerous to produce and that only the best mediums can produce it. And we were sat in this cabinet trying to, um, you know, everybody had to take a turn in the cabinet to, to see if they could produce ectoplasm. And like by the middle of the week, like nothing was happening. And our teacher ended up telling us like we were all like just really terrible mediums. <laughs> <laughs> and like he was he was a good one. He could do ectoplasm, but not with us because we were just like not a good group or something. So, um, but so I started through word of mouth very slowly, started getting referrals to, to mediums who said they were working with ectoplasm. And, you know, after the skull experiment happened in the late nineties, one of the goals with the guy who started the skull experiment, Robin Foy, he wanted to bring physical mediumship back into culture. He wanted to revive it. And so in England, slowly people started doing it more and more. And um, I was meeting mediums. But the, until I met the medium Kai Mugi, who is a German medium, um, and I think we met in 2010, but I finally photographed him in 2013. And that's the first time I saw a classical ectoplasm. Wow. And so what was that like? That was, I mean, because up to that point, I had... I had photographed some mediums who said they were working with ectoplasm, but it was very subjective. It was very like nobody in the room was seeing the same thing. And it could mean, you know, something you saw in your mind's eye or something you felt through temperature. And so this ectoplasm, the term ectoplasm had this like fluid definition I found. Um, but with Kai, no, he really meant like literally what you see in those vintage pictures. And when I sat with him with my camera and he allowed me to bring my camera in and when the red light went on, it was so shocking because it was like seeing those pictures jump to life right in front of my eyes. Like it was, it was really a shocking experience. And the pictures, they do look like, I, you know, when I do my 
um, artist talk, I always put a Kai picture right next to an Eva C picture from early 1900s. And, you know, it looks, you know, it's so similar. But Kai is, um, he's super controversial. Most of people in spiritualism or many of the institutionalized spiritualism, you know, with the, the national, um, the national groups, you know, like in England, it's the SNU, which is a spiritualist national union. They do not like Kai. I was told by some people in the SNU that just because I had even sat with Kai, my book was worthless. And, you know, that's how much he's hated. And um, uh, they don't, a lot of people think that's the way backwards. And Kai says, no, this is the way it's always been in spiritualism. And you need these visuals, you need to do ectoplasm. And he's just a fascinating guy. I actually dedicated like a whole chapter to him. And in the back, I just let him speak for himself. And um, he's got great quotes in that book. <laughs> um, like one of them, one of my favorite Kai quotes is, uh, you know, about spiritualism, like the only innovation in spiritualism, you know, it's this ancient, it's an ancient practice. And the only innovation is this audacity to demand that the spirits prove themselves. That is spiritualism's lone innovation. <laughs> and um yeah. And then, you know, spiritualists only want to talk to the dead and Kai is open to, you know, elementals and um, archetypes and other things coming in in the seance. And so he says, oh, the dead and only the dead inhabit the spirit world. Nonsense. You know, he's just he's so um, he's also just very articulate and really, truly a thinker on all of this stuff. So one of my favorite some of my favorite parts of the text are Kai's interviews um, in the back. Wow, yeah. Um, and so with that experience, what you what you saw, did can you just dis- describe it? I mean, I, I know you said it, it, it was literally as though one of those sort of classic photographs was coming to life, but what did the ectoplasm do? Um, and one of them, you know, I have from one of his seances I actually made a stop motion video because it's like a a hand just comes out of his mouth and it like slowly unrolls and then waves around and then goes back and you know I took a million pictures and so then I just sewed them together like an animation to kind of bring to life what actually happened and that's that's really the only video piece I've ever made was um, this hand emerging from Kai um, but yeah, I mean, it's wild. It's like this gauzy stuff that's oozing pictures. A lot of times the, in Kai's seance, that there's all these pictures within it. And then in one of the seances, you know, I took the picture of the pictures in the ectoplasm and then people would say, or actually live in the seance, that's my uncle. That's, you know, they would recognize the people in the ectoplasm. And so there's uh, some of that story is in the back. I, I, I documented one of those cases where a woman saw her uncle in Kai's ectoplasm. Wow. It's sounds incredible. I, I can't imagine what that was like to witness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kai is such an interesting, interesting practitioner. And as far as I know, I mean, there's really nothing like what he's doing uh, around now. There are people traveling a circuit, I guess. Like there is like a, a very, very underground uh, circuit of mostly male mediums traveling around doing these um, fantastical seances, um, but nothing's like Kai. Mm. And so at what point did you feel like the project was finished and you could put it all together and bring it out as a book. Um, so that what really made me, yes, cause it took almost 20 years to get this book together. And I like to say that it took that long because it's a really challenging topic. I mean, it's really complicated. It took me a long time to learn how to approach it. And there's so much history. Um, and I really had to become kind of like this outsider anthropologist and, and student of all things paranormal in order to complete it. But um, the ultimate moment when I knew that I could publish the book was when I, I traveled to Switzerland because Kai had been doing these full materialization seances. And, you know, 
a full materialization is the apex of seance phenomena. You know, like it's, it's what everybody strives for. It's like the ultimate manifestation. And when Kai started doing these, this is something that was, had not happened in spiritualism in like a hundred years. I mean, it was really, really shocking. And it, 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 he started doing it right after he had this huge scandal where all these parapsychologists who had been studying him were accusing him of fraud. And I thought maybe he'd hang up his seance hat and not do them anymore. But instead he doubled down and did something shocking, which is bring back these full materializations. And so I traveled to Switzerland, to Basel, Switzerland, and photographed one of these seances. And I did get a picture and there's like a long, funny story about how I took the picture and Kai wanted to see it. And I showed it to him and he's like, oh, this is a horrible picture the it's um he kind of called it like a miscarriage like he was so nervous that I was going to be there from so far away that I put too much pressure on his trance state and he malformed the spirit and he didn't like the way it looked in the picture and he didn't want me to use it and then three weeks later the same spirit came back and he got his in-house photographer Marcus Kepler got a got a good picture so then after that I was able to use my picture but after I had like a full materialization you know, this whole arc or this idea of like finding ectoplasm kind of had a natural ending, right? So, um, so I knew that that's, that I could start wrapping up the book after I had that picture, but I, I kind of end on a note of getting beyond ectoplasm. And the last picture in the book is I took this picture of this medium in trance and he would, he, he told me, you know, my face changes shape and I get these masks of spirits over my face. And I took this really long exposure of him that I thought was kind of creepy picture. Cause it, it looks like he's wearing glasses, but he looks like he has this little Hitler-esque mustache. And I really didn't like the mustache. And so I thought it was a bad picture, but he saw it and he said, Oh no, this is, this picture is the picture. This is incredible. And I didn't understand what he meant by that. And then, you know, months later I was visiting England again. And he invited me to his house and he showed me this carte visite of his great grandfather. And so I end the book. It's, it's the most striking, strange photographic synchronicity I had during the project. And that's how I end the book kind of on that note. Mm. Wow. Um, one of my favorite photographs from the book, Shannon, is, I, I think it's a picture of a little canary. Um, and it has I'm not sure what's happening with this canary, um, but it has like this little, almost like a little hairdo. Um, yeah. How did that phot- photograph come about? So that uh, that is an apported canary. Um, it is, yeah, I forget. It's a certain type of canary, but it looks like it's wearing a wig. Um, it's, uh, but I was photographing at this place in France, in the south of France, called Mont Cabaral which was a spiritualist um, seance center run by a couple, um, Tom and Kevin. And they told me that, you know, they were having this ordeal. It was like at a really bad time. And they asked the spirits like for a sign or, or something. And it was like the dead of winter. And they went downstairs and opened the door and that canary flew in. And they said that it was a gift from the spirits. It was apport. It was sent. So that bird is, a, 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 you know, a spirit apport or sent from the spirits because it was the dead of winter and that, you know, it was not of that, not natural to that area anyway. And he just came right in. And so that's the story behind that canary. <laughs> yeah, it's a great photograph. Um, we're almost out of time, but to end the interview, uh, the book has an introduction by Dan Aykroyd. Um, how did that come about? Oh, so um, he actually, so he's a fourth generation spiritualist and um, his father wrote this great book called The History of Ghosts, of a kind of about the some of the history of spiritualism. And they, it was kind of a weird synchronicity. They happened to be visiting Lilydale when I was there. And unbeknownst to me, one of my friends is uh, shares a friend with his wife. So we were introduced and, um, we went to a seance together and I got to talk to his father and his family about spiritualism. And they're all very knowledgeable 
um, about the history and Dan is as well. And he's just like super nice. And I got to show him some of my pictures and he offered to do the forward. So it was, it was just kind of, it felt very synchronistic. It was very, um, it was just kind of a lucky meeting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh man, that sounds so awesome going to the seance with Dan Aykroyd. Yes, it was, it was very fun. Well, Shannon, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back anytime. Oh, absolutely. If people want to find out more about yourself and your work and how to get a copy of Seance, how, how do they do that? Everything is at my website, shannontaggart.com, T-A-G-G-A-R-T. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Shannon, which was episode 100 of the podcast. The photography in Seance is fantastic, and the book is a must-have for anyone interested in the intersection between that medium and the paranormal. No pun intended. There is a link to Shannon's website in the show notes where you can view some of the photographs from the book and find out more about her work. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some other sphere on Twitter and Mastodon and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.